Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Penobscot Theatre Company, a nonprofit organization presenting their musical, The Spitfire Grill, from April 26th through May 13th, the Bangor Opera House, 942-3333 or penobscottheater.org. The time is 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the third program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about ranked choice voting. How will it work in Maine? We'll talk about how ranked choice voting is moving forward for the June primary, what the Secretary of State is planning, and what voters need to know as they head for the polls. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio is John Brodigam. John is a public interest attorney, senior advisor, and strategist to the League of Women Voters Project. Maine uses ranked choice voting. Welcome, John. Good morning, Ann. Joining us by phone is Grace Ramsey. Grace is Deputy Outreach Director for Fair Vote, a national electoral reform advocacy group. Welcome, Grace. Thank you for having me, Ann. Glad you're joining us. On June 12th, primary election day, Maine will become the first state to use ranked choice voting in a primary election for statewide office. There will be a lot of legal and legislative maneuvering, and there has been, to bring us to this point. But now that the election is here, voters want to know what's really going to work for them, uh, for the candidates, and for the credibility of the election process. So, John, let's start by sort of clearing up any confusion about the events of the last few weeks in the legislature and in the courts. What happened, and what's the state of play right now? Well, the good news is that uh, the state of play is uh, ranked choice voting has a green light for implementation for the June 12th primary. It's cleared the the court processes, and it's been affirmed by the state Supreme Court in a ruling a few days ago. So what what happened there was that there were two separate challenges to the Secretary of State, one basically arguing that he was not moving fast enough, and the second one basically arguing that he was moving too fast and exceeding his authority. And all of those have been wrapped up and resolved now. The Secretary of State is on track for implementation. The court has rejected the arguments against ranked choice voting, and it is going to be implemented, and before too long, ballots will be available. So that's a significant hurdle that we've crossed, and the, and the clouds are parting, and it's very good news. That's great. Is that the last word? Yeah, I think this is the last word between now and Election Day. There's been some rumbling about people who, you know, might might look at it again after Election Day. But I've looked at those arguments and most of the other lawyers I know have looked at the arguments that they're raising. Don't think they have a lot of credibility. So not significantly concerned there, although we we certainly do hope that uh, people will uh, respect the results of the of election and, and not contribute to the disruption that's already occurred. 
So basically, is there any doubt that ranked choice voting will be used in the June primary? No, there's okay. no doubt. It will be used. Okay. So how are the ballots going to look? The ballots will, uh, for the races that have ranked choice voting, the ballots will have a um, little sort of a chart where uh, voters will be able to mark um, an indication of their choice next to the name of each candidate, as many of the candidates in the race as they have a preference for, um, ranking from one first choice, second choice, third choice, and so on. And uh, we think the, val- the ballot design is uh, is going to be very clear. We haven't actually seen the um, actual specimen prototype ballot yet, but uh, we, we're fairly sure that uh, the Secretary of State's options are, are really quite quite clear and straightforward and have worked effectively in other jurisdictions. Grace, we're told it's going to be a grid-style ballot. Is that what other jurisdictions have been using? Yeah, there's been a variety of different ballot styles used. Um, I know that in the Portland mayoral elections in 2011 that a grid style was used, and uh, that was found to be extremely successful. Um, but uh, off the top of my head, I, I don't know of other cities using uh, grid style per se. Actually, I believe Santa Fe just did. They just implemented on March 6th for the first time, um, and they also used a grid style ballot. So it, it is a relatively common practice. Um and neither grid nor the layout where you list each candidate's name several times has been proven to be any less understandable for the voters. They, they pick either up very well. So the grid style is sort of user-friendly from that standpoint? Yes, yeah, great. yes definitely. I and, personally find it more intuitive. Okay. And so when people go to the polling place, is their experience going to be a lot different, John? Absolutely not. I think it'll be very similar. Um, they will they will get a ballot. Um, some of the ballots will have ranked choice um, structure to them. Others will be sort of the conventional approach that people are quite familiar with. There will be instructions um, preceding the ranked choice voting section. Instructions will be clear and straightforward, understandable, concise. Um, so we think the voting experience will be quite similar. It just gives the, gives the voter a little bit more say by being able to mark instead of just one spot, being able to mark uh, a, a list of candidates in their order, really empowering them to, to express a more complete um, view of their of their preferences on those candidates. Jeez, I had a question. I just it went right out of my head. Um, which races are going to be covered by ranchers voting? Any race for the legislature or the governor's office or the congressional uh, nominations is um, – it's included in ranked choice voting, but the uh, only races where three or more candidates are on the ballot is it really a factor because with a two-candidate race, it's simply the same as a conventional election. So what, what that really means is that the gubernatorial primary for Democrats and the gubernatorial primary for Republicans and the second congressional district Democratic primary all will be, we will be featuring ranked choice voting choices and then one legislative race in uh, House District 75 from the Republican side has three candidates in the primary. So that one is the only legislative race where ranked choice voting is, a, is an issue here. So really it's not all that many races. No, it really is not that many races and it should be very manageable for voters who are looking at this. And there's going to be one people's veto question on the ballot, right? Yes, there's a people's veto question on the very question of ranked choice voting on the ballot, and a yes vote on the people's veto is in favor of preserving ranked choice voting. So, Grace, tell us a little bit about how this works in other jurisdictions and how well it's been received. You know, is it understandable how 
to what degree do voters in a first-time ranked choice voting contest really participate to the fullest extent? What's your, been, been the experience in other jurisdictions? Yeah, so, um, you know, I have my personal experiences. So I was a voter in a ranked choice voting election in uh, Minneapolis in 2013. Um, and in a in a contest where you're having more than three candidates and in a somewhat crowded field, I personally found a lot of, just as a voter myself, found um, that not just having to pick one person and leave the, the polling place with any doubts about kind of the choices that I made or the risks that I took as a voter, um, I found that really reassuring. And then for other voters, we found the same as well. Um, so the most recent experience with a first-time implementation uh, was about a month and a half ago in Santa Fe, um, where they had five candidates running for mayor, and formally they had a plurality system where whoever got the most in the first round would win, and that could leave you with results like someone being elected mayor of you know the capital city in the state with 25% or something like that. And uh, we found that the voters really took to the system. Um, they really enjoyed using it. And we found that um, 96% of people who voted in that election had their ballot count in the last round, which means between the final two candidates, they had an opinion. Um, and one thing that we tell people in voter education um, uh, presentations or, you know, community events, is that, you know, we don't want you to put candidates on your ballot that you don't want to vote for. But in this case, you know, people kind of had an idea of who, who the race would come down to, and they wanted to make sure their voice was heard in that final round. Um, so we saw people really take to that. Um, we have a, we did an exit poll, and I'm trying to find those results right now. We found um, a definite majority of people wanted to keep using the system, um, and, uh people were pretty confident in, um, in their election results. So um, let me dig around for those results, and I'll, I'll give you some more information in just a moment. Sure, um, that's but fine. overall, it was remarkably successful. Grace, was that a partisan election, or lots of times municipal races are nonpartisan? It was nonpartisan, uh-huh. yes. Um, and formally, it had just been one-round plurality. So it, it was... You know, there was no primary to eliminate the field. It was just those folks running. So, um, yeah, it was a little different in its setup. But I think um, kind of with that crowded field, if you're going to do that that one round or if you're going to narrow the field that way, um, ranked choice voting gives you a more representative result. Right. Is this one of the first times that you're aware of where ranked choice voting has been used in a partisan primary? Um. In, in an official one, yes. So there are other places where ranked choice voting has been used by parties, but not um, not in an official primary. So a couple examples of that are um, in Utah, uh, the Republican Party in their nomination contest, if they're having a convention, um, has historically used ranked choice voting many times, um, both to kind of speed up the process. If you're going to have people come in from all over the state, you want to make sure that, that you're getting folks home at a reasonable hour. Um, and to kind of make sure that they're getting a consensus candidate. So we, we've seen that used there. And actually a bill just passed in uh, Utah legislature and was signed by the governor allowing um, cities to run pilot programs. So that's moving forward based on the experience that the Republicans have had there. John, um, and on the, I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Finish up. Um, and on the other side of the country in Virginia, so right nearby where I am, um, the Democratic Party in uh, Arlington County um, if you're going to use any state funding to run your primary, there are specific rules for how to do it. But they decided 
um, that they would rather use ranked choice voting for some of their nominating contests. So instead of holding that, that primary, they held what was called a firehouse primary, where you hold it at your own location, you fund it, and, and run it as you'd like to. Um, and they've used ranked choice voting, I believe, four or five times now, um, in one case to nominate um, someone for a, uh, the House of Representatives or the House of Delegates in, in Virginia. And that was a seven-way race across two counties, and ranked choice voting served them incredibly well. And there's interest in the state there as well, and a couple bills have been introduced. So in the places where parties are engaging with this, they're finding, to, finding especially in nominating contests, um, that this is creating a much more positive experience uh, for party members. John, what's the party dimension here in Maine, since this is one of the first times that it's been used in a statewide party primary? How does that change the dynamic, do you think? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, we know that both Democrats and Republicans and unenrolled voters do support ranked choice voting. Um, In the legislature, uh, there has been more of a partisan tilt. Uh, um, Republicans have been less supportive of it recently. Um, but uh, the the reality is that it is going to be used in the Republican primary and the Democratic primary. And because of the legal challenge that happened last year, it is not going to be used in the uh, general election for a governor, uh, regardless of what happens with the people's veto. So it is not a case where Democrats and Republicans are running against each other in a ranked choice voting context this year. And so whether or not people support it, it behooves them to understand how it works, um, to uh, approach it tactically and strategically for the, to gain the best advantage at the polls and to communicate to their voters and their constituents about it so that the voters and constituents can also understand it and use it to the maximum benefit for themselves. So I'd try this, like I pulled out, made up a sample ballot with the candidates that were running in each party, and I sort of tried to rank them. And um, I found it kind of hard because I was used to thinking about only my top candidate. I only really had to pick one before. Um, Talk about whether it takes a little bit more investment. Well, it does. It asks a lot, lot, asks more of people to be able to understand um, more than just, uh, you know, who is your top pick, who is your on your team, so to speak. It asks you to look beyond that and actually get into, you know, why do you like your candidate and why do you like the other candidates and what about them do you like? And it requires a little bit more effort on, on the part of the candidates and the part of the voters. But overall, it leads to a more constructive atmosphere for the campaign for the very reason that any voter could be in play for any candidate, at least at some level. And we think that will lead to more issue-oriented campaign and a less uh, combative, acrimonious atmosphere among the candidates. We're coming up to the 15-minute break, so let's do a little check-in with our listeners. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is ranked choice voting. How will it work in Maine? Our guests are John Brodigan, a public interest attorney, senior advisor, and strategist to the project Maine Uses Ranked Choice Voting, and Grace Ramsey, Deputy Outreach Director for Fair Vote, a national electoral reform advocacy group. We've, um, you know, answering some questions about the court and the ballots. Um, I'd like to turn now to um, sort of some of the myths about how to fill out the ballot. Like, does it, like, how would we advise people 
to do this and not do that? Are there some basic tips that people should keep in mind when they start thinking about how to fill out their ballot? Go ahead, Grace, name number one. Um, sure. So if you're using a grid-style ballot, um, you're going to have the names of each of the candidates and then the choices listed across the top, and you're going to want to make sure that you're marking um, one candidate in each of those rows. So um, I think one thing that voters have found helpful in other places, and I'm just I would recommend this always a general practice, is if you have access to a sample ballot, which I believe most people will, whether it's sent to you or you can get it from the Secretary of State's website or what have you, um, bringing a sample ballot with you, kind of doing a practice run, making sure that you um, are, are clear on, on what your goals are when you're heading into the ballot box. Um, I personally have forgotten to do this when I voted in a ranked choice voting election and everything went fine. Um, I had my game plan. I understood where everybody fell in, in the order that I wanted to rank them. But I know that for a lot of voters, kind of having that visual ahead of time and, and making that game plan, kind of your vote plan, as a lot of campaigns would say, um, is, is really helpful in, in going in there and, and alleviating any concern. Because, I mean, change, change is difficult sometimes, right? The ballot will look different. But I think um, practicing with that sample ballot can remove any of that fear um, because it really is just making the same decision just with a little bit more power and a little bit more say. So make a game plan and fill out a sample ballot. What's your next tip, John? Well, I think that one thing that people, some people really, you know, they want to stick with their one candidate and they don't want to think about other candidates. And so they just go and vote for their one candidate all the way down on every single rank. There's no advantage in doing that. So it should be clear to people that they, you know, if they do that, they are actually depriving themselves of some of their voting power. Um, so we discourage people from doing that. By the same token, you can't vote for uh, two different candidates at the same ranking anymore that in 2016 you could vote for both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. You you simply have to choose one candidate at each ranking or else your ballot will be invalidated. Other than that, it's really just the preference ranking that we do every day in our lives when we're choosing ice cream or our favorite craft beer or whatever movie we want to see it's it's you just rank in preference from top to bottom and fill out the fill out the ballot grace how is this affecting the candidates and how they talk to their constituents um in the jurisdictions where this is being used we have seen a definite difference in the way that candidates are conducting themselves um so in my experience in minneapolis you know it was a crowded field and an open mayoral election um this is back in 2013 and i can talk about 2017 as well um, and with that many candidates, you know, you you might worry about a lot of squabbling. You're you're worried about how somebody's going to distinguish themselves with other candidates. And what we've seen is the candidates that are really successful um, have found a way to distinguish themselves without disparaging their opponents. Um, and I think that that's a kind of a new balance to hit in campaigns, right? Of saying, I understand those ideas that you're having. I have some different ideas, but you know, engaging in a dialogue rather than just trying to shout over each other. Um, and we've seen that be pretty effective in the voters really responding to that. Um, in most of the campaigns that I've been around that use ranked choice voting, I haven't seen much negativity or kind of the negativity that I'm used to is a little redefined. I think um, voters definitely pick up on anything in a ranked choice voting election just because, especially if, you know, let's say, I'm supporting one candidate and another candidate attacks the one that I'm supporting – um, I'm probably not going to rank that candidate anymore, right? So it, it creates this, this, this different dynamic of um, debates where, shockingly, we're talking policy instead of, you know, 
to other debates that we've seen maybe on the national stage that can get really ugly. So kind of avoiding that and really focusing on the issues that are going to bring supporters into your base rather than alienating them. Are we seeing Um, any evidence of that kind of change here in Maine, John? Yeah, I think we are seeing. I think candidates have embraced uh, a new approach in their campaigns. I think there were some candidates who initially kind of shrugged and said, well, I'm not going to campaign any differently um, but once they started to actually look at it and once, frankly, some of the smoke cleared with some of the challenges, I think they've realized that they do need to get second tra- – I, th- I think in the ma- in the races we mentioned at the front of the program, I think right now it's hard to see any candidate coming out with 50 percent in the first round. So the winning candidate is going to rely on some second choice, third choice votes. There's very little question about that. So that needs to be part of their strategy. And what Grace can confirm is that in other jurisdictions where candidates have not adopted that strategy, they have not prevailed in the end. So I think candidates here understand that. They're using it tactically. And I think it's resulted in a, in a better environment, better atmosphere um, in the campaign so far. Both the, both the Republican and Democratic gubernatorial primaries are the ones I'm most familiar with. So do you talk about that a little bit, Grace, in some other races where the lead candidate did not ask for second-choice support, how that worked against them? Sure. Uh, we've seen that a couple times. I, I don't want to go into naming names. Sure. Um, but uh, there's a couple examples. So um, in, in a mayoral election with ranked-choice voting, um, we saw kind of the two leading candidates. It was a much larger field than two, but we kind of knew who, who it would come down to. And one of the leading candidates came in with about 25% in the first round. And that's a very solid base. Um, the other leading candidate had a little bit more, um, but that's, that's pretty solid. And what we saw in the subsequent rounds of counting, you know, he was very confident with that 25%. He really, um, he thought that that would kind of set him apart from the field, but with a number of candidates, those second and third choice votes matter. And what we saw throughout his campaign is he didn't ask for one. Um, he just he didn't he didn't think he needed that. He thought he could build to what he needed just by asking for first choice votes and occasionally, you know, discouraging people from ranking. And we saw that backfire all entirely. You know, as the as the rounds of counting went down, his opponents received more and more support as you know their opponents were eliminated and those voters. Uh, had their vote go to their second choice, which tended to be her, at least somewhere on their ballot. Um, and she ended up uh, developing a pretty big lead and went on to win. And we've seen that a few times. Um, so it, it definitely matters whether you ask, because you need to be sure that you have a base that is larger than 50% if you're not going to ask for second choices. And and as John said, uh, that doesn't seem to be a reality in this election. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. So how is this, like, really going to work behind the scenes? I think people have a lot of questions about how the counting is going to be done, what the Secretary of State is planning. Um, John, just give us a little bit of an introduction to how that's unfolding. Sure. So it's kind of a two-stage process. Um, On election night, um, the towns around the state will tally up the first-choice votes, uh, much as they always have done, and... um, in the in the races that we've identified, and those those results would be pretty easy for uh, the media and the public and and the Secretary of State's office to get a sense from those results pretty quickly whether there needs to be a second round. And as I said, we do we do predict that there will need to be a second round. So then, what happens from there is that the information from all the towns needs to be brought together into one central processing. Um, location where the Secretary of State can oversee the second round of tabulation and the third round of tabulation, et cetera, 
as needed. And so the ballots and the ballot information for the towns that that actually have electronic um, tabulating machines, the ballots and the ballot information will be coming into Augusta and will be processed centrally there. It might take a little longer than an ordinary election, but it's very reliable and it's not there's no magic to it it's just simply tabulating ballots and uh running a a a, a computer program actually that will will uh reduce all of the choices onto one single spreadsheet and then an algorithm that will um render the results and of course all of this is verifiable in in multiple ways that you know we can get into if you want but it's a a very a very well tested well um thought out process and the public should have full credibility and confidence in it how many of the actual paper ballots are going to have to go to augusta well there's a large number of towns that still have uh paper ballots and do not use electronic um counting machines but the number of ballots in those towns is relatively small because most of the larger jurisdictions do have uh, counting machines. So I think it's something like 5% of the total ballots in the state um, will be what we call hand count uh, ballots that will still need to be processed on paper and then brought into Augusta and, and fed into a machine in Augusta. Um, so that's 5% out of, uh, you know, could be 300,000 ballots between the Democratic and Republican gubernatorial primaries. That's, you know, 15,000 ballots. It's a, a goodly number, but it's um, in proportion to the total number of ballots cast, it's relatively small. And everybody's still going to be voting on a paper ballot, right? Absolutely correct. And, you know, that's a good thing for the future of election integrity and the ability to verify results and protect against tampering and so on and so forth. It's, it's important to continue to have that paper trail, the paper ballots throughout the state. And I'm very proud that Maine has that and will continue to maintain that. So what's going to happen? I mean, what's actually going to happen for the other 95 percent where you voted on a paper ballot, but your paper ballot is not actually going to the central counting? Well, people are familiar with going into their voting place and placing their ballot into a counting machine. And at the end of the day, the counting machine is uh, closed down and um, it basically a, a switch is flipped and the, the count inside that machine is, is stored onto a flash drive, and that flash drive has all of the information for all the votes votes that were put through that machine during that day. And there are duplicates of that flash drive um, that are preserved um, for uh, protective safety safety purposes. And then that flash drive itself will be uh, delivered to Augusta and um, processed centrally along with the flash drives from the other you know, 300 or so towns that have uh, electronic ballot counting machines. And the security provisions on that? Yeah, there will be um, those flash drives will be sealed in tamper-proof um, containers, and um, they will be tracked uh, in the way that any kind of highly valuable item that's that's being transported would be tracked. And the Secretary of State's office is very um, experienced with bringing in materials from around the state into Augusta for recounts, and it'll be very similar to that kind of a process. Are they encrypted or anything? I believe the um, the flash drives are encrypted so that there is um, no risk that they would be tampered with um, during uh, transit. Thanks. And, and Grace, I, I know that in other jurisdictions which follow sort of similar protocols where um, ranked choice voting has a central counting facility to it, um, there's a, uh, a way that observers and election advocates and stuff can sort of 
track what happened and verify the results. Are you familiar with any of that? Um, yeah, that's been done a couple of ways. So, I mean, most cities that are releasing results, um, you know, they want to make sure that they're accurate before they release everything. So um, cities like Oakland and, and San Francisco, um, once once the election is certified, they get to see the full breakdown. So round by round where every vote went, um, or at least, you know, percentages and, and numbers. Uh, I don't know that you're following an individual vote. But, um, and then other places have kind of gone even further, like Minneapolis in 2013 um, projected the count live. Um, so the count was being conducted uh, with an off-the-shelf equipment, so um, basically an Excel spreadsheet, but with no algorithms put in there. Everything was be do- being done manually, and they were projecting every round um, up on up onto the walls of City Hall, so anybody could come down and watch. Um, and then in St. Paul, even uh, they, I don't think they will be hand counting ballots anymore. I think they've gotten they're going to be getting new machines that won't. Um, that will work a lot faster. But for a while, they hand-counted their ballots, and you could come and you could watch it as it happened down below. So you'd be on the second floor looking down. Um, so all sorts of different different ways that uh, we're making sure we're including, you know, voters that are curious about how this process is going in the process of counting. Um, but very possible, and, and there's several different approaches that you can take. What do you think is going to happen in Maine, John, in terms of citizen participation and observation in the counting process? Well, I know that this, uh, you know, for example, recounts um, are public process, and I think this will be analogous to a recount. I think the public will be accommodated in terms of their ability to over, you know, to watch um, within some limits, of course, because it's a important process where where um, it needs to be managed closely so that there is, uh, you know, n- not um, uh, people coming and going th- throughout the, the room where it's where it's occurring. But I, I'm sure the media and the public will be able to observe, and, and I'm sure the Secretary of State supports having full transparency and full accountability for this process. And, um, you know, they've put a lot of work into establishing it, and I'm sure they have no reservation about the public observing the results of that work and the results of their democracy. Have the rules been finalized at this point? I don't believe the rules have actually been finalized. We expect that any day now. We have a really good sense of where they're going. We were very pleased with the rules when they were proposed as draft rules um, a couple weeks ago. And um, we did a number of groups and organizations, individuals had input and comments on them. But we think they're really headed in the right direction. Um, A few things that uh, remain to be um, resolved in terms of the timing of the announcement of election results, which is an area where, where we really feel um, everybody's going to be very eager to get results, and there's going to be kind of a, um, I think, a, a, a need to make sure that that's expedited as well as possible, consistent with best practices and integrity and, and transparency of the, of the election. All right, let's take another break, and then um, I'll ask you to talk a little bit more about where people can get more information on the rules and what um, you're advocating for in terms of the timing, okay? Um, At this point, though, I'd like to invite listeners also to join the conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are John Brodigam, a public interest attorney, senior advisor, and strategist to the project Maine Uses Ranked Choice Voting, and Grace Ramsey, Deputy Outreach Director for VareVote, a national electoral reform advocacy group. Our topic today is Ranked Choice Voting. How will it work in Maine? If you have a question or comment, uh, here's your time to join the conversation. Call toll-free 866 
625-9378, or if you're calling locally, that would be 469-0500. We have only one listener line open today, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer offline so that others can uh, participate after you. Don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. So, John, coming back to that question about... Um, what we're hoping for in terms of timing and where people can find more information about what the process is going to look like. Well, um, we will be, uh, when I say we, the League of Women Voters of Maine and, and the project that Anne's been describing, um, we will have uh, up-to-date information on our uh, website, and we have a, a, a couple of different ways to get at that. The, just the League of Women Voters Maine website, plus we have a separate website, mainerankchoice.vote. Um, which will also have a great deal of information, and we will keep that up to date the moment we have any um, new uh, guidance from the Secretary of State's office. And really critically, the actual image of the ballot, which people will want to see, you know, get familiar with it before they go, they go and vote, we will make uh, that available or a link to that as soon as possible. Um, we have a caller on the line, Matthew from Warren. Go ahead. Yeah, if, when you put numbers down next to people's names that you want. There's three choices or four choices. If there's somebody that you really don't want at all, do you leave it blank, put a zero, or do you put a three? Or what would be the difference in how they were tallied with a number versus none? Thanks. I'll take my interrupt here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Go ahead, John. Yeah, um, you can either just leave them off or you can just make them the last choice on your ranking. Either one would have the same effect. Um, but if you, um, yeah, I mean, you would make them the very bottom choice. I mean, the, if there are six choices in the particular race, you would make that person the sixth choice. Um, but it has the same effect as leaving them off the ballot entirely. And it's going to be little ovals, right? Is that what we're expecting? Yes, it's fill in the, fill in the oval, just like your, you know, your standardized test, uh, fill in the oval. But the, thank you for the question, and that's a, that's a good question. People do ask that. Um, you know, they want to vote for their top choice, but they also want to make sure they're not supporting their bottom choice, and that's all right. That's democracy. You want to add to that, Grace? Uh, sure. Yeah, the only thing is I would say the advice we give voters uh, when we're doing voter education, or at least uh, one of our state directors says, is rank as many as you can stand. So as many people <laughs> as you have a positive opinion on and you would not mind seeing them in office, rank them if there's someone who you would really not like to see in office, I'd say uh, either, yeah, reserve that last spot for them or leave them off your ballot. Okay. Um, we're taking listener callers right now. It's 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 calling locally. I, you know, I want to talk a little bit, you know, a little bit more about the process and how, um, what people can expect in terms of timing. And I know the secretary of state um, sort of promulgated rules that expected one timing and maybe there were thoughts that it could be handled more aggressively. But what what are we hoping for in terms of the timing, John? Well, there was some um, uh, official, semi-official information around Augusta that, that projected quite, quite a long delay before the results would be uh, available to the public. And we, we think that um, uh, it, it is going to be longer than what people are accustomed to. So I do think, honestly, that people are going to need to adjust their expectations to, to, you know, that there may be a couple of days in there before um, the results will become clear. And, of course, the media and, uh, you know, exit polling and so on, there may be other unofficial ways where, where information is out there and it may, the picture may be coming clear through other means. Um, but we, we would like to say that 
um, you know, the end of the week on election week or early the following week, there will be very clear uh, picture of the results, even if they're not 100 percent complete. So we're hoping you're hoping that the secretary of state is going to start publishing preliminary results quite early in the week after the election. Yeah, we are encouraging we are encouraging that. And we know from other jurisdictions that in, initially there were some uh, election officials who for understandable reasons did not feel um, like they wanted to publish partial results and wanted to wait till every single ballot came in. And as a result, the the very last straggler ballot could uphold the, delay the whole process extensively, where it and it wouldn't even make a difference in the outcome. So those those jurisdictions that did that have rethought that and have changed their policy and are now um, publishing results on a preliminary basis once they have a substantial number of ballots. And they're very happy that they've made that change and they feel that serves the public interest best, better than waiting for um, the very last ballot. Thanks. You mentioned the media, Grace. How? Do news media adapt in jurisdictions that already have ranked choice voting? I mean, normally we're used to seeing the Portland Press Herald and the Bangor Daily News publish unofficial results like the night of the election. What do the media outlets do now? Um, so right now, I mean, we are seeing some um, preliminary results being reported of just this is where the race stands now on election night. Um I mean, I think one of the biggest changes, and this isn't necessarily on election night, but we're seeing editorial boards do ranked endorsements, which is pretty impactful for encouraging people to rank their ballots. Um, But in terms of coverage of election night itself, um, I think a a big focus of of most of the people working in communities with ranked choice voting is to make sure that everyone is prepared for how election night is going to go, and that includes the media. Um, So making sure that they have a clear understanding of the timeline of when we'll know results. so it, it usually is preliminary results um, on election night and then updates as, as we know things going through um, the counting of races. So once once one is decided, they'll report that and then wait for the next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Matt, who called in before, had that question about how many candidates to rank, and it made me think maybe we could clarify how many choices are people going to be able to rank, like it's they can rank more than the top two or three, right? How many columns of rankings are they going to get? Well, in both of the Republican and Democratic um, gubernatorial primaries, they will be able to rank as many candidates as there are in the race. And I think that's six candidates on the Democratic side and four on the on the Republican side. So there will be a slot for each of those. In, in the future, if there's a race where there are more than six candidates, there could be a 10-candidate race, the Secretary of State can has a discretion of limiting the choices down to six, but no fewer than six. Uh, in this case, there are no races with more than six candidates, so that's not really a factor. Mm-hmm. But they, you can rank as many as six uh, along the lines of what Grace said, as many as you can stand. As many as you can stand. Right. Is that pretty common, Grace, to um, for jurisdictions to allow that many choices? It's becoming more common, um, and that wasn't standard practice for a long time because uh, voting equipment just kind of wasn't as prepared to handle it. And in recent years, we've just seen um, leaps and bounds of improvement with the equipment that's being used so that um, uh, it can accommodate more choices. One of the key things there actually was Portland implementing ranked choice voting for their mayor um, with a larger field of candidates and really wanting to give voters the ability to rank all of them um, and showing that that could be done and could be done very well. 
Um, and so most cities that are implementing now are expanding the number of choices that can be on the ballot because the technology is catching up. How many does Portland allow you to I believe rank? Portland allows as many as there are candidates. So and what I, I seem to remember their experience in the first election was quite a mm-hmm. few, wasn't it? Yes. So in the first election, I believe there were 15 candidates and voters were able to rank all 15. Now, wow. That's quite a few. Um, and I was thoroughly impressed with the way that that election was administered. It really was um, superb in the way that they handled everything. Um, and, and other jurisdictions are kind of seeing what was done there, taking taking that um, into account and, and adjusting some of those practices. So a number of the jurisdictions that have been using ranked choice voting for longer um, only have three rankings on their ballot. Um, St. Paul has six. Um, and then others, uh, and both of those are considering expanding that to allow for more choice for the voters, because I think once the voters experience having more choices, they want to be able to, uh, you know, relay their full preferences, not just being limited to three. So I think I think by having all of those candidates on the ballot, you're really um, allowing people to express that full set of preferences, which they, they tend to want to do once they're... Um, aware of the, the power that that gives them as a voter. Yep. Hey, we have another caller on the line. Ken from Gooseboro. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, two two questions and a comment. One, could we talk about the cost of this? There was some concern it would be really expensive. And second, why does it take so long? Is it is it the paper ballots from uh, 5%? And then my comment, I, I recently learned that Lincoln got, uh, he got uh, through the primary caucus because he was totally aiming at getting a second choice, uh, a second choice vote. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, John, cost. Yeah, thanks for that question, Ken. Um, you know, most of what has to be done for ranked choice voting already is needs to be done in a regular election. And so the long story made short is that most of the cost of this can be absorbed within the, the existing budget of the Secretary of State. Um, I'm sure they're going to have to stretch some personnel, and I'm sure there's going to be some unanticipated costs um, that that were not, you know, foreseen two years ago, three years ago. But um, it's it's all within the existing budget, according to um, an analysis that the Secretary of State conducted um, about ten days ago. So um, this is not going to have a price tag that, that you know will need um, taxpayer um, involvement in. Um, in terms of the timing, why would it take so long? Well, um, the the process of getting um, ballots and those memory sticks from all of the 500-plus polling places around the state in a secure fashion into Augusta where they can be processed together because, you know, once, you, once you're past that first round, you, you need to have um, all of the information together in one place to – um, at reallocate the last place candidates' votes to other candidates, and then that that process will continue over and over again until you're down down to the last two candidates and you have a majority. But it's it's collecting that information together in a central place um, that is going to take a couple of days to actually physically bring that stuff into Augusta. Once it's in Augusta, you know, loading the the thumb drives onto a computer takes a little bit of time. Um, feeding feeding the hand count town ballots into a, 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 a rapid scanning um, ballot 
processor in Augusta will take a little bit of time, but that should go relatively quickly. It's mostly the, the time it takes to, to bring the materials into Augusta. When this was originally proposed, and you know there have been proposals for ranked choice voting going back to 2001, I think, but when the fiscal notes for this were first written, it did seem like it was going to cost a lot more, right? Yeah, there were there were um, you know there's, there's uh, for example, if every town had an electronic ballot uh, tabulator machine, um, that would provide some efficiencies and speed things up a little bit. But then you're then you're pr- providing a large machine for a town with maybe fewer than a hundred ballots to count, and you know it comes a point where. Um, you know, do you really need that many machines for every single town in the state? So at some point, um, I think there was an analysis done that says, well, this is a better way to do it. This gathering the, the ballots together and putting them through a central tabulator is, is more cost effective. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are John Brodigam, a public interest attorney, senior advisor, and strategist to the project Maine uses ranked choice voting, and Grace Ramsey's on the phone. She's the Deputy Outreach Director for Fair Vote, a national electoral reform advocacy group. We're taking listener calls at this point in the program. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378, or if you're calling locally, that number would be 469-0500. Here's your chance to get your questions answered or get your point of view on the air. So uh, please join the conversation. Um, So, I mean, basically you're saying the Secretary of State might have had a better plan, a more costly plan, but when push came to shove, they found they could do it for less, right? Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's fair. It's also um, because of the litigation last year, the um, our fewer races where ranked choice voting will be implemented this year. So that was some cost saving as well. And uh, you know, there may be a couple of places where there was just some trimming and belt tightening. But I think in, in the final analysis, we should be very pleased that the Secretary of State has really. Um, focused in on what's essential um, and and has, has taken a, a responsible but thrifty uh, approach to this process and it's going to be implemented without um, you know a fiscal impact on the state and that's something we should all be, be grateful for. Yeah. Uh, so Grace, if we have let's just say 250 or 300,000 voters in the primary, how would that compare to the number of voters that like San Francisco or Minneapolis has? Um, that'd be a fair amount. More. I mean, that's about the population of all of Minneapolis. So if everybody showed up, it would be wonderful. Um, but, uh, I mean, we're, we're seeing jurisdictions that are, are very large using this and, and using that same method. We're making sure that everything needs to get to a central place. Um, in Minneapolis, let's see, I've, there's, there's over 100 precincts that all need to communicate um, their vote totals to, to City Hall. So we have seen very large places do this. You're obviously geographically much further spread apart, but um, we have seen large numbers. And in in Minneapolis in 2017, actually, there was unprecedented turnout. So turnout was much higher um, in the municipal elections than they thought there would be. And even that, um, you know, they they were not expecting to have lines at the polling places at the end of the day, but everybody managed to get in there, vote effectively, and, and get the results in the timeline that the city set forth. So I think jurisdictions once they're you know you want to make sure that you you do this right and by the book the first time and then see how you can speed up the process or kind of what shortcuts there may be um once you 
once you're accustomed to it and you understand um, what the opportunities and challenges are there. So I, I think a lot of cities have been able to adjust to growing voter populations and, and high turnout elections with ranked choice voting. In the other jurisdictions, do they rely on physical transport of the election materials, the electronic and the paper ballots the way we're planning to do? Um, some do and some don't. So um, I know in Santa Fe last month that they needed to transport um, the information from each polling. They have polling centers, so they didn't have precincts. Um, so there were just 12 polling centers across the city. And they needed to get all of those down to City Hall. And even with that, um, they have um, brand-new election equipment that is pretty state-of-the-art, so it was exciting to see. But even even with needing to transport that from across the city, they had results on election night, but that's with the system that they just um, purchased. But they drove them across town. They yes. didn't allow for electronic transmission of the election results. Nope, they needed to be delivered to City Hall. Do you know, is anybody doing electronic transmission of the election results? Off the top of my head, I don't know. Um I feel like it, it's possible, but I don't know of any jurisdiction that's doing that. I think for, for many, um, information's being transported to a central tabulating place. But I, I think it would be entirely possible in some places for that to be um, the practice. It would be possible to do that, and I could envision five or seven years from now having an electronic transmission protocol in place where this would be simplified and expedited. But I think it's has to be coupled with a robust auditing approach to verify those results because it's just another factor. We, we've all read the news and there's, um, there are you know, foreign, foreign countries who you know, would, would love to tinker in our elections um, and we would want to make sure, A, that those paper ballots are always there as a backstop to verify the results and, B, that there are other protocols in place uh, to ensure that the um, results are are credible and not, not not manipulated. Once those things are in place, then yes, the electronic transfer is a great idea. So, does the League of Women Voters advocate for an audit protocol down the road? Absolutely, the League of Women Voters has um, been a strong voice for um, full participation in democracy and also for full transparency and credibility and verification of all election results and processes, and uh, we will continue to be pushing for that. So um, we're coming into the last few minutes of the show. I'm going to just let people know one more time. We have time for maybe one or two calls. If you're still thinking of calling, now would be your moment, 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. But, um, you know, let's just come back to the voters and what voters need to have in mind as they prepare for the election and um, get ready to vote. So, Grace, talk a little bit more about the key tips um, that you want to reinforce with voters as we head into these last couple of weeks, well, a few weeks before the election. Sure. Um, so, uh, so first of all, we said rank as many candidates as you can stand, right? So your voice is heard when you're ranking your ballot. So having that first choice is great, and you want to support that candidate who's your favorite with, you know, every everything you can do, whether that's someone who you just are going to vote for or you want to volunteer for them. Um, and But going beyond that, kind of having those backup choices really empowers you in that election, right? You're, you're going to be someone's constituent, and I think it's important to understand what issues they're speaking to and, and what issues you're going to need to push them on. 
Um, so understanding what you're approaching this election with, what you're voting on, is really essential, and then paying attention to that. One thing that I've done uh, when I was a voter in these elections, and other voters have too, if I'm listening to a debate on the radio or hearing candidate interviews, I kind of always jotted down, either on my phone or on a piece of paper, where people were falling in my ranking. So I was always trying to think about this election as a ranked election. Um, and I think that that helped me understand where people were going to fall on my ballot and understand kind of what I was coming in as uh, uh, voting on as, as someone participating in the election. So I'd say that's one. Um, and then using my sample ballot. And, and I would really, I can't stress that enough. I think the visual of understanding how it's going to look, um, you know, it, it is intuitive when you get there, but making sure that you've had experience filling out that ballot can be really helpful. Um, some people will just wing it and they'll do just fine. Uh, but others, if there is any apprehension, um, I think using those resources to make sure that you have a game plan will be excellent. Um, yeah, and, and filling out all the choices that, that you want to, obviously. I, I personally have a hard time putting someone on my ballot that I don't want to rank or that I wouldn't want to see in office. Um, I think that's kind of just left over from from how I voted in past elections. Um, and, and giving somebody the, the last spot on your ballot is essentially the same. But... I'd say, yeah, just working working out those rankings and then finding the processes that help you um, weight those decisions, I think, is essential. So what happens if somebody gets to the voting booth and they go in there and they're just like, freeze, I can't figure out how to do this, John? Yeah, the town clerk um, and the warden and the, and the election staff are always there to help um, explain what to do to fill out the ballot, just as they've been there in the past, and, and they will continue to be there to provide that. And there will be posters and information available. You know, we've been talking about this for you know going on an hour here, but it really is quite simple. It really is just a question of going in, looking at a ranking, and, and this is my first-choice candidate, this is my second-choice candidate, this is my third-choice candidate, until you don't have any more choices. That's it. That's all there is to it, really. It's not as complicated as some people might think, but people will, will realize that when they get a look at the ballot. And then they can ask for help. And they can ask for help, and the help will be there. So I uh, gave Grace a chance to say her top tips for voters. Go mm -hmm. ahead, John. You do, too. Yeah, I mean, those Grace, I endorse everything Grace said. That was really good. And, uh, I mean, just one little um, semi-serious quip is that, you know, if you don't like somebody on the ballot, then this gives you the choice to vote against that person not one time, not two times, but maybe three or four times. <laughs> so some people really find that empowering as well if you're really kind of uh, fed up with some of the politicians. So I, I'm not in that category, but that framing works for some people. Um, but, yeah, just make sure that you um, pay attention to the candidates. Um, make make best use of your of your power as a voter. And show up for that first choice vote, but also show up for the other votes. And um, I think you'll be really empowered and grateful afterwards. Some people say it's like, uh, you know, giving somebody two votes or two bites at the apple. But um, some people, other people talk about it as being like an instant runoff election. So talk about why the instant runoff analogy is a good way to think about your second place vote. Yeah, it, it's simply the case that if your first place vote doesn't um, get enough support to be in the contenders, then then you um, basically get another shot to express your, your vote as if it were another election and your vote automatically gets switched to the person that's your second choice um, without having to go back and fill out another ballot. It's really that simple. 
it's it's automatic. I mean, we could do you know a series of runoff elections, but that would be wasteful and costly. And this is the same same net result um, with a lot uh, less cost and, effic- and a lot more efficiency. You want want to add to that, Grace? Um. Yeah, I mean the way the way we've phrased it with other folks, I think John summarized it well. But it's it's like you have this opportunity to show up to a runoff, and you get to do it all at once, right? You don't need to come back to the polls. Um, but I think I, I don't really view it as a second uh, bite of the apple. I view it as being able to fully participate in your democracy. So um, yeah, I think John's John's point was great. So. Let's uh, start thinking about summing up. We've got a few minutes left here. Uh, This whole topic has got a lot to it, what voters can expect, what the candidates can expect, what the media can expect and how they can contribute, and what role the Secretary of State is going to play. So there are a lot of moving parts here. Um, What's the final wrap-up? If you have a couple minutes here to pull it all together, Grace, what would you say? Um, I'd say my kind of key takeaway is that I'm hoping listeners um, can can get on board with, I guess, is that, you know, using those second, second and third choices is really to your benefit. I think using all of those rankings um, increases your voice as a voter, right? Because no matter who's elected, wherever they fell on your ballot, um, you'll know why. You know what issues they spoke well on and, and what uh, things that you can relate on and, and where you want to encourage them, but you also know where to push. It gives you an idea of, of where people are falling instead of just being, I like this person and I really dislike this other person. There is a spectrum of, of ideas that we're seeing and, and you have the power to um, engage with them in a different way than we've had to in the past. You're not, if a candidate isn't your first choice, they still do need to speak to, to your issues that they want to build a base of second and third choice votes. So I'd say, um, for voters, um, be be listening for for what appeals to you, and then be pushing. Um, I think I think when with how people are going to have to campaign with this, um, you, there are issues that you're going to want to hear them speak on, and I think you should should ask for that. Thanks. So that would be my main thing: is using those rankings to, to have the full leverage that you can as a voter. Thanks, Grace. This is time for closing remarks, John. Yeah, it's been a long road. It's been 10 years. Um, some campaigns are a marathon. Some are a sprint. This one's been more like a decathlon. We've had lawsuits. <laughs> we've, had, we've had people's vetoes. We've had legislation. We've had signature collection. And now it's the time for the voters. The voters are center stage now, and it's time for the voters to own this system, this part of their democracy. Um, step up and fully express yourself at the polls on your candidates. Understand how this empowers you and um, how it contributes to an idea-driven campaign. And um, you're going to be in the driver's seat now, and uh, it's your it's your moment, and uh, make the most of it. Here comes our music. We are out of time. Thank you to our guest this morning, John Brodigam, a public interest attorney, senior advisor, and strategist to the project Maine Uses Ranked Choice Voting, and Grace Ramsey, Deputy Outreach Director for FairVote, a national electoral reform and advocacy group. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer this morning at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. We'll be continuing this conversation on ranked choice voting this Wednesday, April 25th, beginning at 5.30 p.m. at the United Universalist Church in Ellsworth. 
Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month, third Friday of the month, when our topic will be immigration. Can we live without it? We'll see you here then. Thanks a lot.